our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to Human Circus. In the mid-1250s, Friar William returned from his journey, and the princes of the House of Tuluí set about the tasks that their brother, the great Khan Monka, had assigned to them. And these tasks, these new conquests, were not just further acquisitions of a Mongol empire, like the fruits of Batu's successes in the West, to have and to hold, and to pass down through his family. These were legacies, seeds of new and distinct dynasties. Dynasties, they were soon to grow apart from one another, and even lead to armed clashes between the great Mongol families. The next years were going to bring changes to the empire. There'd be growth, as Kublai and Hulagu stretched it in new directions. There'd be real adversity, as they ran up against the Mamluks of Egypt and the Southern Song of China. And there'd be upheaval in the east and in the west, as both Batu and Monka would die and leave room for new faces, new directions, and new conflicts, as the far-flung members of the Mongol imperial houses, the descendants of Chinggis Khan, would turn against one another, the leader of the House of Chagatai fighting against the Jochid Golden Horde of Batu's successor, the Jochids against a new Tuluid Khanate in Persia, a civil war within the House of Tului over who would replace Monka as Great Khan, and then, an Ogadead challenge the victor's supremacy. It was, to quote Lone Wolf and Cub and Liquid Swords, a bad time for the empire. But it was not all bad. If the Mongol Empire was growing apart, it at least was certainly still growing. Hello and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is Human Circus. At this time, I gently remind you that ratings and reviews are highly appreciated, and that if you choose to do neither, then, like Monka Khan says, how can we know what will happen? And of course, as always, donations are welcome in lieu of reviews. They keep me in hosting money for the podcast, help pay the late fees at the library, and subsidize my crippling mare's milk habit. That business out of the way, let's begin. We've been following Friar William for a few episodes now, so it's been a while since we've checked in with the wider world to see how things are going out there. First, though, I want to note that last episode I left the poor Friar stranded in Acre, against his stated will, saying he'd be stuck teaching there. He would, in fact, make it to France a few years later, though, likely thanks to the intervention of his royal patron, King Louis. He would get there to meet with English philosopher and fellow friar Roger Bacon, who would write about the meeting. That postscript aside, we're going to catch up on that wider world now, 
And we're going to roll that world forward, through the difficult process of establishing a new great con and its ramifications for the many only slightly less great cons who held sway over much of the Eurasian landmass. We're going to prepare the way for the great celebrity traveler of the 13th century, the Venetian Ibn Battuta, and the star of Italo Calvino's excellent invisible cities, Marco Polo. He'll be making his grand entrance next episode. And that means we'll be digging into yet another fascinating period of turmoil in the ever-shifting Mongol landscape, because it's really always an interesting time in Mongol history. Today, it's the rise of Hulagu and Kublai. Both will carve out important new Mongol territories and navigate a civil war, but only one will live to join us next episode. Checking in with our characters, Monka Khan was right where we left him, solidly in command of a still unified empire. Hulagu was invading Persia, and Kublai was conquering the Dali kingdom and administering to his northern Chinese holdings. Let's start with Kublai, the subject of one of Samuel Taylor Coleridge's most productive dreams. Dali in the Yunnan province wasn't an end in itself. It was part of a longer-term goal, the opening of a new front on the west of the Southern Song dynasty, and it had gone beautifully for Kublai. With the assistance of Uriang Kadai, son of the famed General Subadai, he'd defeated the main Dali army, executed the chief minister and the officials who had so unwisely killed his envoys, and seized the territory without any unnecessary slaughter of the general population or its ruling family. It was a show of restraint for which the Chinese sources credit his Confucian advisor, and as we'll see, maybe more critical spectators did as well. For now, though, the campaign, the first entirely under his own command, was considered a great success and Kublai settled down to govern and enjoy what he'd earned. But of course, his choices in governance and enjoyment were going to have consequences. Kublai ordered the construction of a kind of capital. It was carefully placed at the edges of the two worlds, of the Mongol pasture and the Chinese agrarian lands. Kaiping, it was initially called, but you might know it better as Xanadu. The new city was quite a picture of luxury, with its marble palace and its hunting park, and for all its grandeur, it drew negative attention to match. To many Mongols, it represented a weakening of the traditional ways, a corruption even, and in its design, a worrying sign of Chinese influence over its owner's thinking. He's gone soft, they might have said. He's settled down and become something that smacks more of the conquered than it does of the conqueror. He relies too much on his Chinese advisors, on those Taoists, Confucians, and Buddhists he surrounds himself with. And they weren't entirely wrong. Kublai was substantially influenced by people like the astronomer and mathematician, former administrator, and still Buddhist monk, Liu Bingzhong. In some ways, their man in the East was not as much like them as he had been. Likely, there was something of these concerns in the tension that grew between Kublai and his brother Monka. Maybe Kublai's opponents at the Khan's court whispered in Monka's ears that his little brother had succumbed to the softening effects of a sedentary life. Maybe they just had to tell him of Kublai's new palace, how it threatened to outshine his own. 
Or maybe the charge of financial misdeeds and favoring Chinese laws over Mongol ones really were at the heart of the matter. Those were the accusations that Monka's representatives brought to Kublai, and the stated cause for their investigations. And they hadn't come to hand out slaps on the wrist. After inspecting the records, they conducted a roundup of officials involved and had them killed, notably sparing those with powerful connections to Mongol nobles, but largely following a policy of culling the Chinese from Kublai's administration, reducing that cultural influence in the Mongol government, and at the same time cutting Kublai himself off at the knees. And who knows where the investigation was going, and if it might have crept closer to Kublai himself if he hadn't intervened. But he had to. He initially sent representatives to argue his case, but that didn't work. So then he took a more personal route, and went himself, seeking to make a brotherly appeal to the Khan, and to cut out any considerations of taxes, traditions, and Chinese influence. And the appeal worked. The histories tell us that at the beginning of 1258, the siblings embraced and erased their differences. Some, though, have questioned this sentimental picture of brotherly reconciliation. There were, after all, other reasons for the Khan to forgive Kublai those little oversteps in his territory. Manka had big dreams, and he needed his little brother to realize them. His sights were still set on southern China, and he would need every advantage to succeed. Losing the support of Kublai and his northern Chinese connections might have been something he simply could not afford. All this time, Hulagu had also been busy. His own campaign had begun more like a multi-year migration, a more than two-year march, and it was an enormous operation said to include up to 150,000 people, and who knows how many animals. Resources had to be allotted in advance. Actually, land had to be allotted in advance. With the number of horses involved, setting aside and preparing pastures for them to pass through was absolutely necessary. When they approached western Iran, for example, the commander Baiju and his men were ordered out of the way and into Anatolia to relieve some of the pressure on the grasslands, incidentally bringing fresh violence into Anatolia as they did so. But it was not these considerations alone that made the approach complicated and cumbersome. This was also the last great unified Mongol campaign. Much like when the other princes had ridden with Batu as he carved out his Tuluid inheritance, Hulagu was not the only Mongol royal at the party. He had three Jochid princes, a Chagatayid, and men from all arms of the imperial family. As the campaign progressed, he would also have Georgian and Armenian armies with their Christian leaders. He'd have Muslim rulers, the Seljuk Sultan, the Atabeg of Fars, the ruler of Mosul, and many more, with their fighters too. And he had siege weapons, Islamicate and Chinese, maybe as many as 1,000 Chinese engineers who operated catapults and naphtha throwers. There were giant crossbows and trebuchets, there were massive bolts, enormous rocks, pots of Greek fire, and explosive devices using gunpowder. All of this enormous war machine was directed, first of all, at the Persian Nazari Ismailis, the assassins in their legendary mountain fortresses. The assassins had at first submitted to the Mongols and been left alone, but that had been before the the killing and general lack of cooperation, the murder of a Mongol general, 
the refusal of their master to present himself in person to the Khan, and the rumored threat of 400 killers in disguise, which had apparently menaced Monka. The Mongols simply couldn't afford to leave such a potential enemy at their back as Hulagu advanced, and so they didn't. They besieged and bombarded Master Rukh al-Din Kershaw and his stronghold, they forced him to submit, and then they used him to unlock all the other fortresses, save only one or two which held out for a whole year. Finally, his usefulness having expired, he and his family were killed, and Hulagu's forces moved on. Next to fall was the seat of the Abbasid Caliph, Baghdad. The city had a fearsome reputation, but in truth its best days were behind it. There is some suggestion that its soldiers had gone unpaid, and that many had for that reason left the city. And there are even stories of treachery on the part of a chief minister, who was said to have misled his caliph as to the degree of imminent risk, while at the same time informing the attackers of his city's poor defenses. Treachery or not, the Mongols and their vassals reached Baghdad in mid-January 1258, having already destroyed a large part of the garrison. And by early February, the caliph and his family had realized the inevitability of their defeat and come outside to give themselves up. But it was too late. The Mongol policy on surrender had been pretty consistent. You give up now, when we arrive, or preferably sooner, and life gets to go on. You don't, and it doesn't. Letting people call it a day a few weeks into the siege just encouraged the next city down the road to try their luck at resisting too. Under such a policy, examples had to be made. When Caliph al-Mustasim ventured outside the walls, it didn't save his city from being sacked. His soldiers were disarmed, and they were slaughtered. The men were killed, the children, women, and artisans rounded up and shipped out, another violent population displacement in the violent Mongol century. In some sources, the number of the dead is as high as one or two million. And even if we discount that entirely, we still need to understand that the chroniclers are telling us that appalling numbers of people had been killed. There are two stories on the end of the Abbasid Caliph himself. The most likely version has him and his family feasted by Hulagu before being wrapped or sewn in carpets or cloth and then either bludgeoned to death or trampled by horses, so that their noble blood didn't splash upon the ground. The other, perhaps suspiciously poetic version, has Hulagu gaining access to the caliph's treasure, and then demanding to know why he hadn't used it to defend his city. In this telling, the conqueror then seals the caliph in with nothing but his riches, and waits for him to die in a see-if-your-gold-will-help-you-now type situation. And Syria was next. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Back on the eastern front, though, some 6,500 kilometers away, a massive and multi-pronged invasion was coming together. Not all of Monka's advisors had been keen on the idea of going south. It was hot, they said, and full of disease, unfamiliar conditions, and inconvenient rivers. It's worth noting 
that it also represented a politically united giant, managed by an exam-proven bureaucracy, supported by a well-organized tax system, and containing some of the world's most populous cities, including Linan at the top of that list. Monka would not be talked out of it, though. It was, aside from all those things, an incredibly rich prize. And it was besides that, within the Khan's destined domains, as was all of Earth. He had the usual rituals conducted, and he set his plans in motion. Leaving his youngest brother, Eric Boca, at home to run things in his absence, Monka himself went out with one of four armies in 1257. Kublai, despite questions as to his gout, led another which was intended to meet up with a third, with the fourth arriving from Yunnan almost 1,500 kilometers to the southwest, they were set to link up around Iju. Some 1,000 kilometers to the west of Iju, Monka would be taking Chengdu and Sichuan. But these were big distances they were talking about, and this could never be a quick campaign. And it wouldn't be. The summer of 1257 found Monka in the Liupan Mountains, and in the spring of 58 he was taking Chengdu, but then it was 1259 by the time he reached the Chungqing region, and there his progress was halted. There was a fortress on a ridge above a town called Hechuan, and as the rainstorms of late spring gave way to the heat of summer, disease set in. It was just as his advisors had feared. The Monka still was not dissuaded. Meanwhile in Syria, Hulagu's Mongol machine of death was rolling forward and gathering steam as regional rulers and Ayyubid princes saw the writing on the ruins of the walls and submitted. Not everyone gave way, though. Some cities held out, for a while at least. And the governor of Aleppo, Damascus, and Homs, Sultan al-Nasir Yusuf, was not giving in either. Or rather, he was not doing so with quite the desired levels of speed and commitment. His representatives had been there for Guyuk's Kurultai, and he'd followed up with Monka, and more recently been in touch with Hulagu. But he'd neither appeared in person before Monka, nor offered gifts to Hulagu. His fortresses in northeastern Syria fell first. Then Aleppo suffered a seven-day siege and a slaughter, with its citadel holding out for another month. After that, Damascus opened its gates, and it's said that the Christian Mongol general, Kedbuka, entered the cities side by side with the Prince of Antioch and the King of Lesser Armenia. Then, and stop me if you've heard this one before, the Great Khan died, and the future of the whole thing was thrown into uncertainty. Yes, it was Ogaday's death all over again, and just like Batu had pulled back from Hungary, so did Hulagu from his advance through Syria. There's some debate over the exact timing and cause of his movement, but it's known that he left an army under the command of Kedbuka and withdrew with the bulk of his forces to what we'd call northwestern Iran, west of the Caspian. Things weren't all the same as they had been for Batu, though. He didn't have a powerful enemy waiting for him back east, as Batu did, didn't appear to have any reason for delaying matters of succession by his absence, as Batu had. But just like Batu, he was going to stay away. Why? The answer may have had something to do with Batu, actually. You see, Batu Khan, long stable figure of power in the Mongol West, had died. He died shortly after Friar William had seen him, in 1255 or 56, and his son Sartak, confirmed in Karakoram as ruler of Batu's golden horde and heir to the Jochid rule, 
had died on the way back west from there. Settling into the Jochid throne now was Batu's brother Berka. Berka has entered our story before, but only briefly. It was Berka that Batu had charged with seeing Monka placed on the throne back when that was happening. And William had mentioned him in connection with his disparagement of Sartak's Christianity, which he had found not up to snuff. He'd likewise impugned Berka's Islamic beliefs as opportunistic and not entirely authentic, more a product of Berka's base of operations being along a trade route traveled by Muslims than by any deeper-held beliefs. But Berka's beliefs appear to have run a little deeper than William had imagined. The new Khan of the Golden Horde had a number of reasons for opposing Hulagu. In him, Berka was dealing with a fellow Mongol lord, it's true, but also with a competitor, most immediately one whose land claims around Azerbaijan and western Iran overlapped with what Berka viewed as having properly been Batu's, and thus part of his own Jochid inheritance. And he was also dealing with a competitor who had attacked a major Islamic center of culture and power in Baghdad. It was not quite the city it had once been, and the tales of the Mongols running the river black with the ink of the books they callously tossed in may have been overblown. But it was a major Islamic center nonetheless, home of the Caliph, and its destruction part of a wider campaign against the Islamic realms. Berka, despite what William's assessment may suggest to the contrary, appears to have been quite angry about Hulagu's assault on the great Islamic city. And if land and religion weren't cause enough, there's also the fact that three Jochid princes had died during Hulagu's campaign. And they hadn't died in battle. One of them had possibly been poisoned, but in other tellings, the three had all been executed at Hulagu's command, after some disagreement over who had authority. It's a murky chapter in Mongol history, but in some of the sources these deaths are quite understandably, tied to the outbreak of hostilities between Hulagu and Berka. And with these hostilities, we're finally getting to that moment I've been hinting at for some time now, that period when the great Mongol Empire begins to split apart at the familial seams, and becomes a set of slightly less great Mongol empires, plural. This was no fleeting division in the Mongol core, this would be open war in a few years between the Jochid Golden Horde and Hulagu's Ilkhanate. But for now, Hulagu was merely pinned down by conflict and not going east to participate in raising Monka's replacement. Actually, he faced threats on two different fronts. In addition to that of Berka in the north, another power also demanded his attention. That of the Mamluks. The Mamluks were the Turkic slave soldiers of Ayyubid Egypt who had recently risen against the ruling dynasty and were right in the messy part of establishing their own. Despite the struggles, assassination, and infighting that defined that process, they could still prove more than a match for the forces Hulagu had left behind with Kedbuka in Syria. And they weren't mincing words about it either. When they received the Mongol envoys and their demands for surrender and submission to Hulagu Khan, they killed them, they cut their bodies in half, and they spiked their heads over Cairo's gates. It was not normally a recipe for success. It had meant complete obliteration for the Khwarazmian dynasty and for others since then. But that was not to be the Mamluks' fate. They did not wait locked away in their cities and fortresses for the horsemen to come knocking at their door. They prepared themselves for war, and when they realized that Hulagu and much of his armies had left the neighborhood, they went on the offensive. 
North they rode, gathering other fighters to their cause, including men who'd formerly served the Ayubids, and others who'd fought for the Jochid princes in Hulagu's great army. They also reached out to their crusader neighbors to propose an alliance. And this must have been a difficult proposition for the crusaders. In recent years, they'd surely been thrilled to see the Mongols sweeping in like the legend of Prester John come back to life and better than ever, sacking Baghdad, taking Damascus, devastating Aleppo, and favoring Christians over Muslims as they did so. Belonging for Prester John at a safe distance, all the way to the furthest reaches of Asia, was quite a bit different from having his overpowering armies on your doorstep and spilling over into your house. John of Beirut and Julian of Sidon, Christian lords both, had made raids into the now Mongol lands, and the resultant massacre at Sidon when Kenbuka hit back had significantly cooled local enthusiasm for the Mongols as saviors of Christianity. And so had Pope Alexander IV's new policy of excommunication for anyone cooperating with the Mongols. All this, then, was theirs to consider. And though they did not militarily support the Mamluks in their bid to remove the Mongols from Syria, didn't ride in their company, the Crusaders didn't hinder their passage either. Far from it, they even agreed to resupply the Mamluks at Acre, where the army rested beneath their walls. Nothing then stood between the Mamluk forces and Kenbuka's Mongols who came south to meet them. And on September the 3rd, 1260, the two sides collided. They were likely roughly equal in numbers, probably 10 to 12,000 aside, both heavily reliant on skilled cavalry. And in this contest, the Mongols were about to be out-Mongoled. First contact was made by the forces of the soon-to-be Mamluk Sultan Baibars. He and the vanguard clashed with the Mongols and then withdrew, thrown, their enemies thought, into retreat. And Kenbuka's forces gave chase, as so many of the Mongols' enemies had before. They rode in confident pursuit, until the Mamluks reached a predetermined point at Ain Jalut, the spring of the Goliath, where David was said to have slain the giant, with the plain narrowed between Mount Gilboa and the hills of Galilee and where the bulk of the Mamluks waited in the hills under the command of their leader Kutuz. There, Baibars turned back about, and the Mamluk cavalry poured down round the Mongols, the attacker, as had happened so many times the other way round, becoming the attacked. And for all that, for all the success of the ambush, it was still apparently a very close thing. One wing of the Mamluk army was said to have been on the verge of breaking, and only rallied when Kutuz threw aside his helmet to reveal his face and call him to his side. He'd be dead soon, murdered by a Baibars-led conspiracy, but his terrible gamble or act of martial defiance in butchering Hulagu's envoys was going to pay off. The Mongol Syrian conscripts abandoned them. Kedbuka either fell there and then or was taken and put to death, his last words defiant, and his army fled, hunted. This was not an ending to Mamluk Ilkhanid Mongol hostilities. There were interesting times ahead, as the Golden Horde and the Mamluks supported each other against Hulagu and his heirs, and then further shifts as those heirs converted to Islam themselves. But for now, for our purposes, I think we can see why Hulagu may have felt himself too engaged in regional events to make the trip east, to meddle in imperial politics. And how was that going, by the way? How was that succession playing out? 
Not smoothly, one has to say. When Monka Khan had collapsed on campaign in the August heat, Hulagu had broken off his military engagements. But Kublai does not seem to have done the same, does not seem to have immediately turned for traditional Mongol territory, the burial of the great Khan, and the selection of a new imperial ruler at the Kurultai. Let us pay no attention to this rumor, he is instead reported to have said. We have come hither with an army like ants or locusts. How can we turn back, our task undone? Maybe Kublai felt he needed a fresh military triumph to bring to the table for succession talks. And so his army pressed forward. They laid siege to Ezhu, and were helpfully joined first by Uriang Kadai's army, slightly depleted by fighting and disease, and then less helpfully by song reinforcements. Somehow, it seems the siege was not exactly watertight, these reinforcements made their way into the besieged town, and so further months passed. The Song commander, the emperor's chancellor, actually, offered a deal. Yearly tribute, if only the Yangtze would be acknowledged as the new border. However, Kublai was not interested. What could such a deal offer them now when they had already crossed the Yangtze by force, and could do so again in the future as they pleased? As it turned out, it was going to need to be in the future, because there was troubling news arriving, much more so than that of Monka's death, apparently. Word came from Kublai's wife that the little brother they'd left at home, Arik Boka, was in the process of mustering forces, his intentions as yet unknown. It wasn't clear just yet what these forces were to be used for, but soon it would be. Two days after the news had arrived, messengers came from Arik Boka, innocently inquiring after Kublai's health and offering greetings, and they claimed to have no idea of any troops being raised at all. Naturally, Kublai was suspicious. He left generals in charge of the siege at Eju and went north to assess matters for himself. Messages went back and forth, to Arik Boka asking about the troops and animals being gathered. Why weren't they being sent to aid efforts against the Song? and then back again to Kublai with gifts of falcons and calming words of reassurance that an army was no longer being raised. Eric Boka is said to have been counseled to soothe his brother's suspicions so that Kublai may feel secure and grow careless. But Kublai neither felt secure nor grew careless. He accepted the gifts and parted peacefully with the messengers as if all was well and his heart truly at ease. But then he immediately wrote to his generals, quote, Abandon the siege, at once and come back, for our mind, like the revolution of fate, has changed. The next escalation was to be that of the competing curl ties. Each man called his supporters to him and announced himself to be the one and only great Khan. However, these ceremonies were both not quite legitimate, and it was a fact that would return to haunt Kublai long after this chapter in his life had ended. There's some disagreement over who made the first move, whether Kublai was reacting to Arik Boka's declaration, or whether it was the other way around. One version finds Arik Boka gathering what supporters were at hand, not near Karakorum where Kublai might more easily strike at him, and where such gatherings were traditionally held, but in the Altai Mountains where he summered. Though he is portrayed in sources such as Rashid al-Din as the usurper, the schemer, and the plotter, he can also be seen to represent the more traditionalist inclination within the Mongol Empire. And he had no shortage of support, 
He counted among his allies the old Khan's sons, one of Manka's wives, grandsons from the Ogadai, Chagatai, and Jochi lines. But it seems doubtful they were all able to attend his hastily summoned Kurultai. Even more doubtful than this, Wisses claimed the support of both Berka and Hulagu, but that was exactly what he trumpeted across the empire in an effort to cement his authority and to paint Kublai as the rebel outsider under excessive Chinese influence and trying to manipulate his way to the throne. Of course, this would have enraged Kublai himself, but if the story is true, it's likely that Arikboka's dishonesty also drove many Mongol notables away and into the arms of Kublai, the only viable alternative. In this telling, this is the point where Kublai calls an assembly of his own, a Kurultai, but again not one at Karakoram. His would be at Kaiping. He likely had Hulagu's support, but that was going to have to be in spirit alone. He did have northern China, though, with its wealth of men and resources. He had the army he'd taken to war against the Song. And he had powerful allies, lords like his cousin, Kadan of the House of Ogadai, who was going to aid him in cutting Eric Boka off from southern supplies. Kublai was going to try and starve and squeeze the Karakorum his rival had returned to. Whoever had gone first, they were both out in the open now with their positions announced, and already they were beginning to take one another's pieces off the board. An Arakboka loyalist and Ogadead grandson was caught leaving Kublai's Kurultai to tell his Khan what he'd seen, and he'd be killed. Meanwhile, Kublai tried to have one of his own supporters set in control of the Chagatayad lands. But Arakboka intercepted him and his hundred-man escort, and had them all killed. Like Kublai, Arakboka set to place his own creature in charge of the Chagatayads, a man named Algu. However, he didn't have quite the hold over him that he thought he did. Algu was supposed to send supplies once established, but instead he turned on Arikboka and his ally Berke, raiding his territories and substantially expanding Chagatayad holdings at the expense of both the Golden Horde and his former political patron. Maybe he sensed the way things were moving. Arikboka, for all the traditionalist support he must have had around him at Karakorum, to even contemplate the whole endeavor to begin with was becoming isolated within the traditional Mongol lands, and that was no longer such a great proportion of the empire. In a series of battles, Kublai was closing in, and Arikboka was being driven deeper into the north, running low on supplies, allies, and hope, while his opponent now wintered in Karakorum itself. He needed some good news, and he did receive something of a reprieve when a rebellion in China demanded Kublai's personal attention but he gained little from it in the end. As 1263 turned into 1264, starvation set in among his army, and his friends became fewer. Algu threatened from the one side and Kublai the other. There's a story of a great wind sweeping in and carrying off his own tent and breaking its supporting post. It was not a good omen, and indeed Eric Boka did not have great things in the future. He had made his play for the throne, and he'd come up short. Really, there could only be one outcome. As the end closed in, Eric Boka tried to make a last brotherly appeal. Much like Kublai had done with Monka, he presented himself and asked for peace, submitting to his brother's will. The Khan looked at him for a time, and was moved with brotherly feeling and sorrow. Eric Boka wept and tears came to the Khan's eyes also. He wiped them and asked, 
Dear brother, in this strife and contention, were we in the right or you? Eric Boca answered, We were then, and you are today. Morality had been decided in force of arms and political maneuvering. Feasting followed, and for the moment, Eric Boca took his place among the other princes. But the whole matter could not go so easily forgotten. Eric Boca was said to have taken the responsibility entirely upon himself, declaring himself the author of the crime. However, so much damage and strife called for more than one scapegoat. Kublai had his defeated brother's commanders asked what fate ought to befall one such as they, who had brought about such discord. At first there was silence, and then a senior member among them spoke. O Amirs, why do you not answer? Have your eloquent tongues become mute? That day when we set Tariq Boka upon the throne, we promised each other that we should die in front of that throne. Today is that day of dying. Let us keep our word. Perhaps the moment was not staged quite so dramatically as that, but it came to the same thing in the end. Death for those leading men, powerful, but not enough so that they couldn't be killed in the circumstances. But Eric Boca himself was another matter, a deeply awkward one, that was to be decided the cruel tie Kublai then called for. He'd won the war, now he wanted the prize, the ceremonial legitimization of his authority by all branches of the royal family and perhaps also advice as to the fate of his little brother. His messengers went out, but it seems that the Khans all had other pressing matters on their plates. Algu, who the messengers reached first, replied that he too had taken power without the approval of either Kublai or Hulagu, and when all the worthies of the Mongol world were assembled and spoke on whether they thought him right or wrong, then he would say what he thought. Hulagu, who they reached next, said, more or less, that when Burka set out for Kurultai, he would go also. And Burka, wouldn't you know, had something similar to say, just like Kublai and Hulagu arrange a time and a place, and he would be there. Algu worried for his own unofficial status, and Hulagu and Burka worried about each other. We know that the Jochid lord and his Ilkhanate counterpart would not be meeting in peace in the Mongolian interior. It was open war ahead between them, civil war, one might say, and what was broken would never be made whole again. And Kublai, he would get neither a proper cruelty to declare his election, nor any assistance or at least shared responsibility in dealing with Arikboka. There'd be no moment of mutual guilt, no Ides of March at which he and Hulagu could stick their knives in together. And maybe Eric Boka's death came entirely innocently, the exhaustion of the losing campaign and an unhealthy lifestyle. It's possible he was just another member of the Chinggisid bloodline, with a severe drinking problem and health problems to match. But under the circumstances, it's a little hard to believe he went in peace, in his tent, and by natural causes, that as Rashid al-Din so tiercely puts it, in the autumn, Eric Boka was taken ill and died. Poison seemed likely to many observers then, and it seems likely enough now, too. More deaths followed in 1265-67. to 67. That of Berka Khan, ruler of the Jochid Golden Horde. Of Hulagu, founder of the Ilkhanate that was to become its own Mongol Persian Empire. And of Algu, too. He'd taken power of the Chagatayid Khanate rather opportunistically, but he'd then die in the midst of struggles with Kaidu of the House of Ogadai when Kaidu rose against Kublai Khan.
it was all falling apart, and there'd be less and less to bind it all together. A mighty empire would remain in the east, though, and we'll be going there. There'd be unity enough still for travelers to pass from one end of the continent to the other, and Kublai was going to do all right for himself, proper cruelty or not. He was going to survive those bloody years of the mid-sixties, and he'd play host to our next journey. In the last years of the Latin Empire of Constantinople, in 1260, a pair of Venetian merchants left the city ahead of a storm and made their way, like Friar William had, across the Black Sea to Saldaya, and, like William, from there they went east. Their names were Niccolo and Maffeo Polo, and it's their story, theirs and that other lesser-known Polo, that we'll be getting into next. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Circus will return. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.